Let's open our Bibles to Genesis. Genesis 9, 18-29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, they laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awake from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, we will be wrapping up the story of Noah. Uh, His final words, actually, they're the only words recorded in the Bible of Noah, as we hear as well about uh, his death this morning. And so far, over these past four weeks, we've had a picture of a man who was called righteous, blameless, described as one who walked with God. Do you remember? One of only a couple people described that way. And Noah has showed incredible trust and obedience as he's carried out the plans for a massive ark, remember, built over a hundred years, a a six-day journey from sea. What a challenge. He remained faithful over a year-long voyage on the flooded earth as he waited patiently for God to intervene and deliver this chosen family. And upon their deliverance, remember last week, the very first thing Noah thinks of is Yahweh, his covenant God. And he sets up an altar and sacrifices animals, signifying his absolute dependence and submission to God. He pleases the Lord with his life and so receives the covenant, the binding, saving personal relationship with God. And as we last left him, he was standing with his family under the rainbow, the sign of God's war bow turned away from humanity, pointed up to the sky that ultimately pointed at Jesus, on the Christ on the cross for you and I. And how would things turn out after the flood for this great man? I mean, we know how this story should go. We've been trained by our entertainment habits even. The hero's victorious. He lives with his family happily ever after. The scene fades to black, and Noah and his family are laughing around the dinner table as they're laughing around the dinner table, and the credits roll up, right? That's what we expect. That's not what we see. We see Noah, passed out drunk in his tent, naked like a frat boy. That's what we see, like a party animal, 
why would God put this story in the Bible? And what's its purpose? You know, we all fear, each and every one of us, we all fear being naked and exposed and known for our true selves. None of us wants to have our secrets known. It's, it's a fear that someone will find out about my dark secrets, my secret sins, expose me and therefore ruin my reputation and destroy me. Well, Noah was literally exposed and shamed. And his sons responded in vastly different ways, we see, when that even impacted their own futures. And this morning as we enter into this story, we're going to talk about Noah's exposure, but our own too. How do we deal? How do you deal with your own nakedness and shame in life? And where do we find true cover for our nakedness and shame? This morning, we're going to look at two chapters of this story, the incident and the oracles. What happened and then the oracles. So let's begin by look, first looking at the incident. Grab your outline if you got it, hopefully, in your Bible. Let me open mine to Genesis chapter 9. As we begin looking at the first chapter, let's look at it. The story that doesn't turn out as we think it should. If there's ever a story in the Bible where you're like, what? This is where this is going? This is Noah? This is the last thing we're going to hear about him? I mean, this really is a strange story. So what is going on here? Let's first look at this. Let's look at Noah's sin and nakedness, the first part of this story first. Let's take a look there. Noah came off the ark with his three sons. And sometime after the flood, he plants a vineyard, grows the grapes, and begins to make wine. Now, we're not sure if this is the first wine made in history, and I'd have to think, actually, that alcohol and drunkenness probably fueled some of that pre-flood evil we talked about a couple weeks back. But nevertheless, Noah makes wine. He drinks too much. He becomes drunk, and he passes out naked in his tent. What a picture, huh? Don't envision it. It's not a flattering picture. <laughs> it's not a flattering picture of the one who walks with God. I mean, here, Noah, it, it, here he is. He's like a new ruler of the earth, another Adam, given a second chance at building life, and here he is passed out drunk. Well, some of have tried to say, well, Noah was just naive. He didn't know what he was doing. He was overwhelmed by his product. He was just naive. Noah was 600 years old. <laughs> he was not naive. He should have known better. But here's the thing. The vine and the wine wasn't the problem here. The Bible very clearly considers the vine even noble, you might say, Describes wine as God's provision to gladden the heart even. Psalm 104 says, You cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate. And you bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. And Isaiah speaks of the future age, the age to come in heaven like this. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And Jesus says that when he's about to leave at the Last Supper, he won't drink from the fruit of the vine again until he does with us in the age to come. 
The problem wasn't the wine. The problem was with Noah's heart. Same for us. Remember, he carried his sinful nature with him through the flood. The problem is the great danger of of drunkenness, of what Noah pursued with that wine, being mastered by it, being mastered by alcohol, being enslaved to it, being drunk on it. We know that's a problem. We know that is sin. And Noah was deep in it. And we're to see here, actually, I believe, the disastrous effect and the fact that a grown man, 600 years grown, was laying incapacitated, oblivious to the world, naked and exposed in his tent because he drank too much. We have to see that. To be enslaved to alcohol is wrong. And the fact that nakedness in the Old Testament is always tied to shame. To be naked in the Old Testament is always tied to shame. Israel's described as a prostitute, lifting up her skirt to expose herself to foreign gods. Nakedness equals the exposure of sin and shame. Remember, back in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked, weren't they? And fully exposed and known to each other and God. And that was the only time it was beautiful. There was no shame there. No fear in those moments of standing there naked, totally in front of each other, exposed, and in front of God. But then comes the fall. We referred back to this a few times in the series, Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked in that moment. And they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They made themselves loincloths. The curse comes. They realize something is wrong. There's an exposure. There's a nakedness that, that, uh, that, that the nakedness even points to, an exposure of their true self, their loss of innocence, their loss of purity, and relationship with each other and with God. And that nakedness points to that. As Adam fell, think about it, through eating of the fruit, so Noah has a second sort of fall through another fruit, doesn't he? The fruit of the vine. And both of them are left naked and exposed, vulnerable and ashamed. Now, if the story stopped there, it would be strange enough, wouldn't it? <laughs> if it just stopped there. This is a way we'd think that's a strange story. But it doesn't stop there. Let's keep going in the incident as we look at Ham now. Ham's hubris and mockery as he crosses a boundary. Ham's got this hubris, which is like a, a, a showy display of boldness. Pride. Along he comes in our story, and the best we can tell is that he goes inside the tent and sees his father naked, as the text says. Now, lots of people, as they've heard this story, have speculated about what Ham did. What did he actually do? The text says this, he's, quote, he saw the nakedness of his father, end quote, right there. But some have speculated kind of some far-out things. Some said that he castrated Noah. Kind of hard to get that from the text. Some have said that he slept with Noah's wife. But why would you then go tell your brothers about it as he does in the story? You wouldn't. I really think the text 
does not give us any clear evidence that he did anything other than see his father naked. Now, motives are something different. Motives can be much different than just the action, can't they? But I really think he just saw his father naked. Now, this is hard for us to understand Noah's response. It is. And cursing of Ham, uh, Ham's son Canaan for just Ham seeing him naked? But ancient morality was a morality of modesty, of discretion, and privacy, and honor, and very clear boundaries. He violated a boundary, a moral code, much like we've been hearing in the book of Genesis, as Adam and Eve violated a boundary with the fruit, and a few weeks ago the demons wanted to violate a boundary and join with human women. He also exploits Noah's vulnerability by mockery when he goes out to the brothers with a garment, fully leaving him exposed. It's like he's saying to his brothers, look at the old fool. He thinks he's so powerful and great. He is weak. He is shameful. He is a sham. He is a drunkard. There's a lot more going on here than just a few uh, words in the text. He was trying to destroy his father's reputation by stripping him bare. But that's something we feel too. We know this feeling. In each section today, we're going to follow up with a a question of application. So here's our first one. Why is it the fear of every human being to be naked and exposed for our true selves? To be exploited metaphorically? It's to be violated, to be exposed. It it rips us apart when something about us is revealed that we wanted to hold deep secret. There's a deep hurt that happens when someone knows and exposes something about you, whether it's a private piece of information or a sin or a failure. We want to be known, just not too much, right? Right? How do you know this? What are some uh, uh, examples that point to the fact that we, we, uh, we get this? If you're knocked on someone's front door that doesn't know you just for some reason, you ever had to do that? You just, just knocked on their door. You kind of get the really suspicious partial opening of the door. Stiff body language. The kind of like mistrusting eyes. The quick once over just to make sure what's this person doing, what do they have, who are they? You've, you've had that. You've experienced that. Or, or friendships. You let someone in. Just a little bit. I mean, an acquaintance or a, a simple friend. And we expose ourselves to them, but then they walk away. They leave us and we, we feel hurt. How about a romantic relationship? Take it deeper. It's even harder. I mean, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have been heartbroken before? Probably everybody in this room. You you let them in even on a deeper level than a friendship. They look over the where's, they give you the once over, and they're, I'm not interested. And it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. So, uh, side note, that's why marriage is called a covenant and why it's supposed to be permanent. It's the only place you can finally let your your guard down and people can't walk away or they shouldn't. How about the hidden sins in your life? The hidden sins are there if they only knew. 
or that thing you said that was so hurtful that sometimes you, you play it over in your head late at night when you can't sleep? Stupid thing you did in college? Maybe it looks a little like Noah's stupid thing. <laughs> we get this. These are just some examples. We get the exposure of nakedness and what it communicates in the Bible. These things we hide because we know and we feel that everyone's approval of us is conditional. If they find out, I am done for. I'm done. This is what shame does. This is what nakedness does. This is what exposure does. But here's our challenge. As much as we'd like to hide, there is one who sees it all. Psalm 139, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. It's kind of as if David wants to be known by God, to be known and, uh, and, and not known at the same time in those verses. Known and not known. And that's what it's like when we open any, any part of our life to someone, and surely when it's God, or how about this one? And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's, that's can't get more naked than that, right? <laughs> everything, everything about us is exposed to God, and not only that, we have to give an account to him for it. So how do you handle your nakedness before others and God? How do you handle it? Well, aren't we glad that Shem and Japheth step in to cover Noah? Aren't you glad the story didn't stop there? They do. Let's take a look at there. Shem and Japheth's gracious covering before we talk about our own. Well, while Ham, he completed his father's exposure, Shem and Japheth graciously restore his honor by covering him over. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of grace. Noah is undeserving here. Noah is unable to cover himself. And in that moment, he doesn't even realize he needs saving. He's incapacitated. He's passed out. And the text is very uh, careful to let us know his boys make every effort to cover him, walking backwards with the blanket here, even says it twice, just to make sure they don't further shame him and cover him up. It's a picture of grace. I can't help but think of 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And in so doing, Shem and Japheth, what do they do? They mirror God's act. Who covered Adam and Eve in their sin with the animal skins in Genesis 3? God. God did. And here they picture God's grace as that was an act of grace. They picture God's grace for us in their covering of their father. Psalm 32, which we read, says this morning, top of the service, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
covered. But aren't we just like Adam and Eve, who attempt to take some not very uh, helpful fig leaves to cover themselves? Aren't we just like that, to cover our own shame, to cover our own sin? So our next question, how do you attempt? How do you attempt to cover your shame and guilt? Because we all are tempted to do it. Adam and Eve did it. How do you attempt to do it? We all have our natural bent towards hiding and our fallback that we use to sort of get ourselves out of something. What's yours? Uh, From a sermon this week, I pulled a few examples, a sermon by Andrew Field that I really liked that he was going through that I think will resonate with us too. Uh, We've got a technique of how we cover and the result or what it looks like. How many of you, and just think through these, what, what, what is your tendency when you think about your own sin and shame to cover? Denial. Ah, it's not this bad. There's a good reason for this. Let me just explain it to you. But then we begin to believe the lie over time. How about criticism? Do you deflect and cover your own failings and sin and shame with criticism? Yeah, well, look at him. Look how bad he is. Or, yeah, but you said, you know, remember what you did? We blame shift. We all do this. It's a good thing to ask. What percentage of the words that come out of your mouth are critical, negative, complaining? Could some of that be a covering for your own shame and guilt, shortcomings? How about cravings, addictions? Alcohol, one of them. We self-medicate with things that provide comfort without conflict because we don't want to see those things that conflict brings out in us. Entertainment, maybe. Hobbies, substances, Porn, recreation. I mean, think about porn for a minute. Is it not the uncovering of nakedness of somebody? Is it not the pulling back of the blanket for our own escape? Our own sense of deflecting insecurities? It's it's, it's, it's Ham. It's Ham's act. How about self-protection? We do this one. I'm not letting anyone in. I'm going to be an island. A fortress, guard my heart completely. We build walls, no entrance, no pain. But then you isolate yourself and you become a prisoner on your island of one. How about the last one, self-righteous? Look at all the good I'm doing and, and not the bad. See the good I'm doing, not the bad. Hey, I mean, at least I go to church sometimes, right? <laughs> that might be one that might resonate with some of us in the church. The problem with all these fig leaves the problem with all these coverings of our nakedness and shame is that they're, they're like the fairy tale of the emperor's new clothes. We put all these on, we try to cover ourselves, we go out, we're still running around, but guess what? We're still what? Naked. We're still naked. So what do we do? What's our solution? What's the answer? Well, it comes in the second chapter. After the story or the incident, we come to the oracles now. So let's look at them. Oracles that lead to God's plan for three branches of humanity. Well, Noah learns what has happened once he wakes groggy and probably hungover. We don't know exactly. He was probably told, though. Somebody probably told him. These are the only recorded words of Noah in all the Bible, what we get here. 
These are the only words. And they're interesting and maybe probably as you heard them a bit confusing at first look. We call them oracles because there's no magic in Noah's words. He's not a wizard. He can't pronounce things and he can't make them happen. There's no magic in Noah's words. There's no power in the words Noah says here in and of themselves unless the Lord, Yahweh, desired to and would bring about Noah's oracles to fruition. No power necessarily in Noah's words on his own. Unless there's a prophetic God-given spirit in them, which we'll see is kind of the case. But more really as we look at these oracles, more than just a curse on one son as we'll look at, in a minute, and a blessing on two, what we have here is really the setting up of three branches of humanity from which all the people groups of the earth have come. It's leading us towards Babel in a, in a couple weeks, too. We've got three branches of humanity that come out of these three sons, and that's really what's going on here. So let's look first. Let's see Canaan and the curse. Verse 25 explains that Noah uttered a curse upon Canaan. And that curse would be slavery. Slavery to his brothers, slavery to their people groups would be the curse. So who's Canaan? Who's Canaan? Why does his name pop up all of a sudden? Canaan is the youngest son of the offender, Ham. That's who Canaan is. He's Ham's son. Now, is it right for Noah to do this? It seems, on first blush, first hearing, it's like, that's not fair. Why would he curse Canaan for his father's sin? Well, first of all, the Old Testament does give us an example of judgment passing from one generation to another. Exodus 20 says this, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, foreign gods, for the Lord your God I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But did you ever notice in these verses? I kind of caught this for the first time this week. Did you ever notice in these verses it says, the judgment for the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the sons of only those who hate me. Only those who continue to hate the Lord. A later generation can be judged for the sins of their fathers, but only if they're of like-mindedness in their hatred of God. So it's not just a hard and fast, you know, father sins, three and four generations, guaranteed judgment and repercussion. No. We know that God loves to forgive those who repent. And we have those like Rahab that came out of cursed people groups with repentance and faith and were blessed. So what's going on here then? What is happening here then? I love a man, this man, Franz Dielich, the way he described it seems probably what's most likely here. He says this, Noah, through the spirit and power of that God with whom he walked, he discerned the moral nature of his sons and the different tendencies which they already displayed. The germinal commencement, that just means like the beginning, the starting point of the future course of their Posterity, the generations, and uttered words of blessing and curse, which are prophetic of history of the tribes that descended from them. In other words, the curse has in view the future people groups of the Canaanites, and not just the man Canaan here, but actually this people, the Canaanites. And that Noah prophetically, or as a good father who'd lived with his sons for 
hundreds of years probably now, uh, knew their tendencies. You probably would know your tendencies of your son after 200 years, right? And knew the tendencies of them and so prophesied curse and blessing in light of that. But as I said, it's not just Canaan, it's the Canaanites. As we'll see throughout our Genesis series, who are the Canaanites? They become number one enemy of God's people. That's what's starting here. They are the ones who inhabit the promised land that Joshua is asked to expel in Deuteronomy. The Canaanites, they come from Canaan, from Ham. And if you're wondering if they were like-minded in their sin with their forefathers, check out Leviticus 18 later today. (laughs) There's a list of sins there that I really wouldn't even want to read out loud here uh, with kids present. (laughs) They followed in like-mindedness. They were really, they were a sexually enslaved people, Leviticus 18 shows us, these Canaanites that lived in the land. And so this curse is not necessarily really even about Canaan, but all those generations that would come from him and follow in him and his father's path. So let's look at the blessing then. Shem and the blessing. Look at verse 26 with me. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. The blessing is given. The curse goes to Ham and Canaan. The blessing goes to Shem. But the wording is interesting as I read it. Did you hear it? It's directed at the blessing of the God of Shem. Not just Shem, but the God of Shem. Noah connects the the covenant name, Yahweh, to his son Shem, by blessing the God of Shem. And here we have set up for us the rest of the book of Genesis. And really, with Japheth in a moment, really the entire Bible, really. We've got set up for us here the rest of the book of Genesis. The blessing looks forward, as Ham's curse did, to a people group, Shem's people group, those who would come from Shem's line. Well, who comes from the line of Shem? We'll find out soon that it becomes the promised line of the seed from Genesis 3. From Shem's line, we get Abraham. We get Abraham and the Jewish people. They come from the line of Shem. And Israel would be in a special, unique covenant relationship with God. And here with Shem's blessing is the preparation we see in the blessing of the God of Shem that probably points to the fact that Shem was already in that covenant with God. And the preparation even, I think, in these words of the giving of the land to Abraham and all that would come to God's people, the Israelites. We'll see more clearly in a couple weeks. So I want us to see this real quick this morning. Here's just a general idea of where these people groups disperse. So the area of Canaan there along the Mediterranean Sea, Israel and kind of the Middle East there today. So Ham inhabits and Canaan, the land of Canaan, and goes down into northern Africa for the most part, into northern Africa. Shem goes east there, the yellow. So Ham is the green. Shem goes east there in the yellow, kind of towards Asia, towards that way. And what about Japheth? Japheth he gets just one line to, to close up here in and, and the verses. and Where does he go? He heads north and kind of into southern 
Europe, becoming one of the largest groups of Gentiles as he heads north. So what about Japheth? We've got Ham with the curse. We've got the blessing with Shem. What about Japheth, the third son? Let's look at Japheth and the gathering now. Japheth and the gathering. You'll see it on the slide coming up there. Japheth and the gathering. Well, Japheth is blessed too. And in his verse, he's told that he will live in the tents of Shem. Possibly reside in the tents of Shem. But we don't have any evidence in all the Bible, really, that Japheth ever dwelled in the tents of Shem, literally. There's nothing ever anywhere that really says that that took place. And yet it's prophesied by Noah. We just don't see it that everywhere, anywhere in the Bible. Well, not exactly. What happens in the New Testament through Christ? The Gentiles, the Japhethites you might call them, they're gathered in, aren't they? They're gathered into God's people through Christ. So maybe it wasn't literal tents they would live in with Shem, the Israelites, God's people. But by the time the New Testament comes, and thank God for it, what happens for you and I, the Gentiles? We're gathered in. We're brought in through Jesus. Gentiles become the seed of Abraham. Look at Galatians. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. There's Japheth gathering in the tents of Shem. Heirs according to the promise. In Romans 9, some of you might notice there's something familiar. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's not about flesh. Not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, Romans 9 says. The calling of the Gentiles, do you see it? Is declared through the mouth of Noah. Our salvation is declared through the mouth of Noah. The gospel is present from the beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve, the gospel is declared to them. The serpent crusher, remember, who would come as God covered them with skins as well in grace. The gospel was given through Noah as he was covered in the ark from God's judgment, like Christ is our ark. The gospel was shown in the grace that Shem and Japheth showed as they covered Noah's nakedness. You seeing this? The gospel shown in Japheth, the Gentiles being covered in the tents of Shem. So here's our final question. What is the true covering that comes from the branch of Shem? We all need covering. We all need it. I mean, that's what the Bible shows us. And we're going to see in Genesis, as we've already started here with Noah, that most of the heroes of the Bible are full of a bag of mixed motives. There is good, there is evil, and sometimes more evil than good. All of them need God's covering. All of them need God's grace. The Bible is not just a gathering of moral stories, independent stories of characters that you're called just to emulate and try to be like. It's not what it is. It's a comprehensive story about a God who covers sin by grace. That's what it's about. 
That's why Noah's story is here. And on the cross, it is Jesus Christ who provides the covering. He is the one who covered Adam and Eve. He is the one who covered Noah. He is the one who covered Abraham. He is the one who covers you and I. That is true covering. That is true covering. Jesus comes, do you know, from the line of Shem. Jesus comes from this family line. They become the line of the seed. This family line now is the family that truly matters in Genesis. The only way your nakedness, your shame, your guilt can be covered is to be found in Jesus. That's why, the, that's why we're talking about the language in the Bible is be found in Jesus, to be covered by Him. He was shamed. He was stripped naked for us. He was the true king of the world, not Noah. He was the true king. And he came down to a nowhere town, didn't he? In a dusty, remote corner of the world, and he preached and taught and loved and healed, and yet he was despised for you and I. He was made naked and shamed for you. He became your shame and guilt on the cross. Why? So you and I could be covered in God's blanket of grace. That's why. So you could walk out in the world without fear and shame and guilt because He's covered you in grace and your sin with His blood and His righteousness. Stop piecing together fig leaves, in other words. Stop piecing together those things to cover your nakedness when you come to Christ. And too many Christians live under the weight of past shame and guilt when if you are in Christ, the shame and guilt is gone. It's gone. It's covered. Totally gone. When you repent, which is really just admitting, I'm naked in front of you, God, and repent and believe, excuse me, and admit your nakedness and your, your sin and trust, you are in Christ. I love what Martin Luther said. So when the devil then throws in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, that shame and guilt, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction, covering on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Throw it right back in the face of your shame and guilt. That's the heart of the gospel. Trusting Jesus, laying down our sin, not hiding it, giving it to God. And when you do, when he looks at you, do you know what he sees? Perfection. Perfection of his son. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Noah believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's what it means to be covered, to be found in Christ. He knows your nakedness. He knows your deepest sins. And yet he still loves you and forgives you. And what are we going to look like someday? What are we going to look like someday on that final day? Revelation tells us. Revelation 21, 
Come, I'll show you. The bride, that's you, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. That's what you'll look like. That's what you'll be. You see what happens? The story actually turns out better. Better than we could ever imagine it. Let's pray.